Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 77. It is Monday, February 17th, 2020. This week I'm talking to my cousin Stuart, who is an acclaimed film director. He's made great movies like Sorority Row and Whisper and the Halo Ford Unto Dawn series that was turned into a movie for Netflix. And he directed the iGeneration video. So, we are going to talk about what it was like growing up in Los Angeles, uh, what it was like growing up together as cousins, what it's like being a father now, and everything. My cousin's a very interesting guy. He does a lot of car commercials these days, and he's working on some other projects, but I've always looked up to him. I love him a lot, and I always wanted to have him on the podcast. So he tells a great story about Carrie Fisher and um, working with her on Sorority Row. So I wanted to end the episode with uh, my All the Way Up Fat Joe parody, my Jabba the Hutt song, because I thought it was appropriate with the Star Wars reference with Carrie Fisher. I am on tour with Schaefer the Dark Lord and the Double Clicks. We are in Kansas City tonight, and this is the night that the Double Clicks join up with us. The first part of the tour has been just Schaefer and myself. So tonight is Kansas City, the 17th. And then Minneapolis on the 19th, then Chicago on the 21st, Cleveland on the 22nd, Ann Arbor on the 23rd, Columbus on the 25th, then we end in Rochester on the 26th. So this is my interview with my cousin, Stuart Hendler, and this episode is brought to you by the following Patreon Larsons. For only $4 a month, you can get two brand new MC Lars songs. I'm doing a lot of MCU tracks right now about every movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You get access to my entire back catalog, stuff you probably haven't heard, and it's tight. So I want to shout out the new ones. Matthew, Graham, and Ryan, and shout out to the old ones. Lowell, Eric, and Michael. This episode is brought to you by them. This is my interview with my cousin, Stuart Hendler, on the MC Lars podcast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this week on the MC Lars Podcast, I'm here with one of my heroes, man. We're both visiting the Central Coast for the holidays, and I said, Stu, can I have you on my podcast? I want you all to give it up for my cousin, Stuart Hendler. Woo! What's up, cuz? Can I call you cuz? Yeah, call yeah, that's what's up. All right. I don't think it, it's that's funny. That's real. It's funny how cuz is like a thing Crips call each other. Oh, so maybe we should steer away from that. <laughs> but I don't know how many Crips listen to the podcast. If they do, shout out to everyone. Yeah, come one, come all. You can call me cuz. Okay, cuz. <laughs> <laughs> you are a few years older than me. Three years? I think four? so. 78. 78 and I'm 82. So three and four, a half. Four and a, three and a half. You're better at math. Oh. Um, and there was a period in our lives where you grew up in LA. I did, mostly. And then Bay Area, we both lived in the Bay Area when you were in high school, middle school. Sixth grade and high school. Sixth grade to high school. And we lived there. We had a period of like three or four years where we were, maybe three years? Overlapping. Overlapping. Yeah, I think so. And hanging out a lot. Yeah. We all had braces. That's that's what's up. <laughs> and it was an awkward time. Because yeah. puberty. <laughs> because of puberty. <laughs> and because, I don't know, you and I both decided we wanted to be artists. Really crazy idea. And guess what? We both have survived doing it for yeah, our careers. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> By some definition, yeah. 
Where were you born? I was born in Santa Monica, California, which is by the coast in LA. And you grew up in Mar Vista or? Uh, we hopped around a lot. So I think we lived in like seven places till I went to college. Mar Vista and lived in Brentwood for a minute yeah. with OJ. And then well, we- Were you there when- no, oh. we we moved up, but when they they showed the helicopter footage, I was like, "That's my house." <laughs> yeah, it, was, it wasn't wasn't as big. <laughs> um, Brentwood, and then um, and then Orinda, mm-hmm. and were you other places in the East Bay or just Orinda? Yeah, yeah. Um, and your origin story is interesting because your father mm-hmm. was a folk musician actor who became a doctor. Weird, weird route. And um, your mom was an artist mm-hmm. and a uh, she flipped houses. Yeah, house flipper before it, it was cool. And was into the digital arts like early on. Yeah. And they both ha- had this son, this creative, inventive son, who in a way, I don't know, manifested so much promise and beauty and creativity in such a genius way. And they saw that in you. And both your parents are artists who had this artistic son who went on to make a living doing his film, his art. Yeah. And they were really proud of you. They were really proud of me. And they were really supportive. I was lucky because they were both artists who I think had to, especially my dad, who was like a folk singer Early on, I could tell the the story about him being... Yeah, tell that. Yeah? yeah. Okay. So he was uh, roommates with Peter of Peter, Paul, and Mary in college. And they used to play the banjo together and write songs. And, and it was like their thing, their buds. And when they graduated, my dad went off to medical school. And Peter found a couple of uh, people that wanted to be in a band with him. And he called my dad. And he's like, hey, I'm starting a band. And my dad's like, yeah, good luck with that. I'm going to be a doctor. Sounded like the better route. And then Peter, Paul, and Mary happened. Uh, and my dad, I don't think ever, ever lived that down. But he did get a songwriting credit on their first album because it was one of the songs they wrote in school. And that was cool of Peter to give him pu- publishing rights and and co-writing yeah. credits. Yeah. That was little, cool. Little yeah. royalties. I remember like my dad would get a check. It'd be like three cents. <laughs> He'd like run in and tell us. He was so proud. Hey, my record label check came in. Yeah. But Pre-Spotify, like I'm sure that the streaming revenue... It has continued to grow as people like go back and play their old catalog. That's a good question. I wonder where they're sending those checks. I know it must be to his. <laughs> <laughs> she calls Damn anyone it. listening works for CBS Records. Yeah, <laughs> I'll give you my address <laughs> offline. Um, and Uncle Joel was also an actor and did some voice work, right? He did. He read books for the blind as a volunteer thing. He gave acting a shot for like three years. Which it was really when I was a baby, so I don't remember it at all. And then I think reality called, and he he went back to being a doctor. So I'm yeah. I think what you said earlier is like they both I think wanted to live more artistic lives than they ended up living, and made some sacrifices to to be parents and to you know raise raise kids and keep a household, and mm-hmm. that's what allowed me to kind of do what I what I love. So I'm. I'm super grateful for that. And you went to one of the best film schools, USC. That's what we like to say because we're pretty, <laughs> pretty arrogant. <laughs> you, but you, yeah, you worked hard. And remember your student film in high school. Oh lord, uh, 
Beyond Suspicion. Beyond Suspicion. Beautiful. Uh, see, early early <laughs> effects. You edited on what your school's Mac or at home? I think yeah, at home in like Adobe Premiere one point. I think it was actually one point Wow. And so you did this as like a extracurricular thing, right? Not yeah. for any. Grades. No, we just did it because we were we were having fun. You got all your friends together. Yeah, put all the friends <laughs> and uh, put everybody in the trailer. So there was like a ten minute trailer with like everybody's names. And you had that's good. And but you had the Cal- I dropped all the VHSs off at school. Made all the teachers show them. <laughs> that's probably pretty annoying. Did they show it at school? <laughs> yeah, in assembly or something, or in class? No, they just like showed them in the beginning of class. Stuart Hedler threw, threw it up there, like. This is happening. And you had, I remember you you made a box for it and you had a funny quote. You're like, full of rollicking, <laughs> raucous entertainment and a whole cast of digital monsters realized by ILM. Do you remember that? Funny, yeah. You had all this funny fake quotes. I thought, I thought I was pretty funny back then. <laughs> but you had a great scene where, well, let's tell this is a long form <laughs> podcast. Yeah. The story, I'll see if I remember it and you correct me. That's fine, okay. right? Okay. So you have- this guy, this these guys work in a. They work at a dam, right? They work at a hydroelectric Hydro- facility. That's yeah. correct. And so you and you film the Caldecott Tunnel as like we did. the exterior shots. Mm-hmm. And someone comes in. Also filmed by George Lucas in his early student film. So oh. you know, <laughs> it's pretty good. Good footsteps to follow. Oh, so was that in, an intentional nod to Lucas, or you learned that? later? No, I think we learned that later. That's what's up. Yeah. Um, good taste, yo. And then someone within the hydroelectric dam just wants to sabotage it. And this is pre-9-11. Has this, I, yeah, this was pre-9-11, huh? Like, what was it, 98? Who did you been? I graduated in 97, so I had to be in somewhere around there. Okay. 96, 97. And he wants to use domestic terrorism to get his point across. Do you remember? What, I don't remember what his point was. Well, it was two guys. Someone had, wasn't there like a love triangle and someone was trying to get back at? Probably. And so, I just remember that there was like... <laughs> I really like the hunt for Red October. Oh right! And I remember that there was a saboteur, so okay. I wanted to. I want to have a saboteur. Man, it's a cool word. And then Gareth was in it, right? Yeah, Gareth. Gareth. Did he go to college you or no? No, he went to Carnegie Mellon. Oh right, and Colbert was. Colbert was n- maybe he was in it for a minute. Okay, but mostly behind the scenes. He went to high school with you. He went to uh, nearby high school. We were just buds. So it's interesting how you had this. You have always had this ability to organize and galvanize people to manifest your vision. And you're as a professional director, that's kind of you're applying those trades early on. I remember you at like up at Tahoe um, summer and stuff, you'd organize us to make these videos and direct us and have all these images. And I must have been so annoying, dude. <laughs> I, let me just apologize publicly for all of this. <laughs> well, Stuart, I think you were very informative on my artistic vision because I was like, okay, to get things done. You need to have a holistic vision and know what it's going to look like at the end. You need yeah. to be fearless that the people you, I'm doing air quotes, enlist to have you help out are going to um, show up, do their job, do it well. And if not, you're going to guide them in the right way. And you have to realize that what you create might not be perfect. You just summed up filmmaking and all art <laughs> in one really nice quote. That was good. Thank you, Stu. Especially yeah. collaborative art. Yeah. Which, which the film industry is surely. Yeah. I yeah, I, I think it's maybe the most collaborative art. I don't mean that in like an arrogant way. It's just it has every other art in some way within it. You know, you've got sculptors building sets and you've got painters and musicians and 
writers. It's just got everybody in there. So, set design. Set design. Yeah. And yeah. and and to be to synthesize all that. I remember you said that to me once. How that's why you're drawn to film because it was not just one thing. Yeah. And and I got to work around other other artists and like, cl- collaborate and just hire people that are better than me at things and watch them be cool. So you did. You made this film um, above suspicion. Beyond suspicion. Beyond, I'm sorry. Beyond suspicion. Okay, right. And. You got into the film program, which your parents didn't have to <laughs> bribe with the USC admission. As far as I know, there's no proof <laughs> to either way, actually. They wanted you in the film program. Yeah. And then you, I remember one of your films, your student films was, um, what was it? One with the ice cream truck? One was the film I made right after I graduated. That was my little like- oh. From college, like post graduation film, yeah, and that was was it part of like a thesis project or like a no, it wasn't related to USC. Although I did, I may or may not have illegally used USC's production insurance to make that film. Okay, well, no oh. one knows. No yeah, one knows. we won't tell anybody. <laughs> you were that. you were alumni, so they love their alumni. Yeah, that's cool. I think I donated. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so you made so, but I remember one summer. I always do these fun projects with you. Like you invited me to come help be a production assistant on a student film that shot at Universal Studios. I love the way that you perceive that as an invitation and I perceived it as drafting you into working for, for free. free. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 16, 15 or 16. Um, and it was a World War II movie. Yeah, it's a grad film. They, they spent some money on that. Oh, the grad film. Yeah. They, Those grad films were like, they were ballers. They the, were pretty crazy. I was undergrad, so uh, we didn't we didn't have that kind of moolah. And so, but wh- where does the funding come from? Is it like the students invested or the, the students? Yeah. Wow. So, like some students would spend like hundred fifty grand on their grad film. Oh my gosh! Pretty nuts. There's no guarantee you'll recoup that. Zero. There's a pretty good guarantee you will not. So it was like a World War II movie about um, what happened when the Nazis uh, li- liberated Russia. Right? Was that the theme? It was. It was called Talk for Alt, which means thanks for everything in Danish. It's like I'm reaching into the distant past here, man. Yeah. And it was about harboring fugitives. And it was about a group of people that that Harvard, 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 Harvard them, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, fugitives like escaping from Germany, I think. Maybe, maybe Russia? In, In Denmark? Oh, oh, I remember it. The Russians came in. To, to it was Berlin, and the Russians were coming to. Um, li- I'm doing quotes again. Liberate Ber- Berlin, but they were really brutal. So it was like uh, the fall of Germany, and it was. I don't know. I, I guess I. That I sounds only, right. Yeah, that I only saw right. it once. Wait, did you, were you in it too? Did we make you wear a costume? Yeah, I was in it. Yeah, yeah, you were so, a soldier, huh? <laughs> that was yeah. So I was my first <laughs> acting role. I remember I ran by the camera, but I had a whole costume and everything, and yep. you could see me for a second running by the camera when she's escaping, and. Um, I realized wow, that was a your lot, big break, man. It was <laughs> a lot goes in. I was like, a lot goes into just a second. Do the whole yeah. costume, and then they'll just see your legs. And it's like this this yeah. thing that um, you know, I'm a big fan of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I do know that. And there's yeah. the the quote where you know when they they go back back in the speakeasy and Roger hits the lamp and it's swinging. Mm-hmm. So they had to animate every cell with the light like it was moving. So yeah. there's this this phrase that. People say you you should bump the lamp, meaning do what's hard because it's going to look good. Oh, I it's like become that. Become an animation phrase. I like that. So you bump the bump lamp. the lamp. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's hard, Words it's going to gonna be worth by. it. That's cool. I like that one. So that's what's up. So you then 
after you graduated, eventually you were directing features. Yeah, somehow that happened. And you had you have four or five features that you did that you worked with big studios and huge casts and huge budgets and no, that's amazing, man. So let's go over. I so trick trick them into hiring me. Whisper. Let's talk about Whisper. Whisper. So then that featured two of the people from. One uh, we had Josh yeah. Holloway from Lost, yeah. Sarah Callies, who was on Prison Break, and uh, and uh, what's the zombie show? Walking Dead, Walking right? Dead for a minute. Yeah. yeah. And then we had Michael Rooker, who's now in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's the blue guy who has a little whistle oh, yeah. that shoots people. And who else was in that? Oh, uh, Joel Edgerton was in that, who's like in everything now. And you were, what, tw- like 24? I was 25 or 26. And what was the budget on Whisper? Uh, it was 14 or 15, I think. Million. I think by the time, yeah, a million. By the time I think we finished reshoots, oops, it was 18. So so from beyond suspicion to $18 million budget. Yeah, it was a little bit different. In, in like, we're talking less than a decade. Yeah, that's true, huh? Good works, too. Luck, lucked out. So you came out of USC and people saw your student film and you had a, you've, you networked with agents and built your whole team yeah. to get to this point to make this feature film. And yep. you were very young in the industry to be given like- Probably too young. Project. <laughs> <laughs> I think Whisper really holds up. I think anyone listening, go watch it. It's great. I mean, I, I, I bet it's streaming on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Get those three cent residuals checks coming, guys. <laughs> Add it with the Peter Paul Mary. Yeah. <laughs> <residuals>. <laughs> well, I did. So yeah. I did the just to like give you the timeline. I did the student, which was not a student film, but used the insurance of my college okay. uh, film, and then I got some commercials off that. Well, so I PA. Okay. Like I, I worked as a PA for a few years, like uh, from when I was 18 till maybe 22 or 23. And then I finished that film. The film sat on the shelf for a minute. We entered it into Sundance. It got rejected. We redid the music, just the music, nothing else, not a frame different. It got into Sundance and then it won an award at one. Sundance. Uh, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. I had put the rejection letter right next to the award. and Nothing like a little music. That's to awesome. Spice things up. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't know that story. Yeah. That's cool. It was a year went by while we waited. Um, yeah. And then after Sundance, it, like things kind of kicked into gear. I got a, an offer from a commercial company to shoot commercials, which I'd never done in my life and didn't really know about. What and was your first commercial? My first commercial was for Amstel Light. Yeah. Hey. hey oh. <laughs> it was cool. I was, I was thrilled. I still yeah. do commercials. I love them. Um, but yeah, I got a cold call and I was just like, I don't know how to do commercials. And I got a company that thought the short was cool. And they're like, we'll pay for a spec commercial, just like a, a test run. Mm-hmm. And we were going to do, they let me like come up with the concept, which was a bad move on their part. And I was like, going to do this cool diesel fashion ad. But then the night before or the day before we shot that, we found this like kind of neat location. And I came up with a different concept and I was like, can I shoot this literacy PSA at the same time? And they're like, if you can do it for less than 500 bucks, sure. And so we cast that real quick. And uh, the spec commercial for diesel, which I think they spent like 25 grand on nothing for me. And that $500 spot for literacy, like won some awards and kind of kickstarted everything. That was the good one. I think I remember that like there's a sign uh, like near a, 
power station or something. It says, do not enter. And the, and it comes off as like weird hieroglyphs and the guy climbs in. It's so, like, like a little kid looking at a, a do not enter sign in this big uh, like barbed wire fence and his football's on the other side. Oh. And he's trying to figure out how to get it. And it's like like electricity and like obviously a place you shouldn't go. But the sign is written in like letters that he can't understand. And so yeah. it, it resolves into like words and then you realize he's illiterate and that's dangerous. Don't be illiterate. You get shocked. <laughs> And then it cuts. You don't see what happens. <laughs> Just dead. That's dead. one of the things you've always, um, two things I noticed about your aesthetic that you've kind of defined as part of your work is the surprise twist. So like okay. one where the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's an accident. Mm -hmm. And in the accident, they're reliving all the memories of their relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's mirrored with this interesting dance of them through their life and the final moments of their life. Mm -hmm. And then- isn't there a hand on the window that becomes like a motif? Yeah. And you That's don't a USC word. A motif. <laughs> for for what? The human connection? Is that Sure. Let's go there. <laughs> and that's me. And so and then it turns out that maybe they didn't even meet each other. Or what what was the twist in one? It was left up to interpretation. But okay. I, I I think that the twist the first time you watch it is that they you're seeing that their life is has ended. Like this is this is the end. Because uh, I don't think you expect everybody to die at the end of a of a short film, but I think it's a bit more oblique than that. Like you can kind of mm. read it a few different ways. Slash, I didn't know what I was doing, so please interpret and send emails. <laughs> or slat, and the email is what <laughs> Stuart at mac dot com. Okay. Go for it. So, um, and the other thing is that in a video, so along along this process, you and I collaborated on what was yeah, my first did. music video. Yeah. I generation, yeah, which holds up, and I don't know. It was on recently. It was in. It was um, trending in some some subreddit subreddit <laughs> about the early aughts. Really, about how like the optimism and joy, and about how that came out a few years before the recession, and how like um, maybe <laughs> the message hasn't aged well. <laughs> I was like, I didn't want to jump in the comments, <laughs> but I followed this subreddit, and, and it came up, and and you're an optimistic guy. Yeah, it's op it's it's the video is incredibly optimistic. The lyrics are a little dark, but it was <laughs> so it's so great. And talking about the twists, you have this. Let's go back to the word quote motif yeah. of the explosions where yeah. I interrupt the classroom and it's a party, and yeah. then and your mom's in there. There's she, some cameos going she's on. She's a teacher. Your parents were both in it. Yeah, Uncle Joel's in the supermarket for sure. <laughs> then yep. Rosie's in the parking lot. <laughs> yep. And we filmed an Indio like around the time Coachella was started was getting started like recently. That right like before. wasn't even a thing really. No. It was just getting going. Yeah, I'm sure that town Probably because we shot there. Exactly. That it took off. And and I said I don't want to play Coachella because I I can't I'm better than that. I'm better. Yeah, you're better than that. I didn't have time. And <laughs> um but going back to this whole thing about your aesthetic like at the end I'm sitting in the classroom in detention with an actress your your friend Noah mm -hmm. and I text her on this old flip phone <laughs> you are part of it it's like june 7 2004 which is the which when the album came out and she looks at me and then behind me is the party <laughs> so it's like this question of whether what's real and or not and that was, was like a, a dream thing. that's like part of your your you always said to me like andrew that's my those of you listening that's my real name andrew good art is when <laughs> you you're like that didn't happen or did it and you play with their expectations right and you can and you've always said that and whisper is the story of a uh, tell the story of Whisper real quick. Okay, well we're gonna dive into the the dark world of studio movies and lack <laughs> of creative control if we go there. Um, oh man, Whisper. Okay, so Whisper was an amazing opportunity that I got because I did a couple commercials 
like I said, and uh, a producer saw them and he thought they were cool. One of them was sort of moody and um, and scary. I did a lot of scary PSAs. It was like motivating was with it? fear. The one where the bird comes back to life? No, it was the one where the people are being chased around by a shadow and telling them to wear sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stu, wait, did you get in trouble and you had to do like community service? Or <laughs> no one might think. No, I did this by choice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, PSAs are cool because you could do like, remember all those like, this is your brain on drugs right. kind of stuff from the 90s or whatever? Yeah, classic. Eight. Yeah. So that's, I guess, my influences. Like all these are really like severe, dark <laughs> warnings about not doing things. Right. Um, yeah. So I did that. This producer's like, this guy might be good for thrillers or horror movies. Uh, I got a call. I actually got a call to do a, a much cheaper movie at the same company. And I was like, sure. And had to do a big pitch. And they said, okay, we'll make that movie. Except that was obviously never going to happen in retrospect because it was going to sit in development. Did it come out or? No, it never got made. Okay. It was just in development forever. And then Whisper was a bigger movie at the same company being made by Universal. And its director, they lost their director like right at the beginning of prep. Probably because that director was smarter than me. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey <no. laughs> And they needed a director quickly. And so I was like, I got a call from my agents. I was on the 10 freeway in LA. I remember this moment. And it was like a Sunday and my agent called me. It's like yeah. a fancy agent. And I was like, why is he calling me on a Sunday? Right. Am I getting fired? Right. And, <laughs> or does he have a flat tire? Like, what is, does he need something? And he's like, all right, Whisper is available. I'd read the script because I'd read all the scripts at that company to kind of be in the know. And he's like, Whisper's available. We're going to get you that movie. It was a very agent-y, positive way to put something. And so they got me on this list of 50 directors. And by the end of the week, they'd sort of whittled the list down to like 10 directors, which I was somehow still on. Wow. And then we had to do this pitch on Saturday. And so I did this like, um, I pre-pitched it to my manager. The it, following Saturday? That, that so I was like, yeah, this, wow. that next weekend. It was wow. real fast. Yeah. And I pre-pitched it in IHOP to my manager. He's like, let's go do a rehearsal pitch. And it was the worst pitch ever. Like I, I could see in his eyes the embarrassment he felt for himself having brought me on as a client and the film industry at large that what I was going to go bomb stop. this what pitch. Made it no, it was terrible. It was, I was just like faltering and nervous and oh. I couldn't get through it. And I couldn't keep a thought. Did you have and notes then, or was it all memory? I was trying to do a memorize. Right. And then I walked into the actual pitch and I like I like killed it. Oh, I have no idea where it Good came from, Steve. but I was like, I was like razzle dazzling. Did you have um, storyboards or anything? You just did the spiel or what? I did the spiel. I brought in pictures and like uh, images and I was talking about how it was going to look. And I think I said something as cheesy as girlfriends are going to be grabbing their boyfriend's hands in theaters across America. <laughs> Which like, I don't know why it had to be girlfriends grabbing the boyfriends, right? right? Like pretty sexist. Uh Anyway, so they liked that, and then it was down to two, and they wanted another pitch by Sunday morning, which was Super Bowl Sunday of that year. I remember all the executives wanted it done by by nine a.m. So you wanted, so you had to do a pitch the next morning. Yeah, like a repitch, and they wanted storyboards for the five what I what I considered the five scariest scenes. So I did those overnight with like a storyboard artist, stayed up all night, and went in and pitched. And then I got a call on Tuesday that I got the job, and I flew like that weekend to Vancouver and started prepping. It was so fast. Wow. And so because you were able to deliver and able to to do what they needed. 
Yeah, they took it. They took. I had good things to say, and they took a chance. And it's none of those good things that I had to say ended up making it onto the screen because movies are challenges and they're meat grinders and right. they're. I, I learned. I learned. Uh, it was like a baptism by fire. I learned really tough lessons on that movie. That that when you're working inside the studio system, it's it's like collaboration on is like the nicest way to put it. It's a lot of people that are trying to serve a lot of different masters and um, and it's it's this crazy intersection between commerce and art and when you're working on a studio movie the commerce is definitely on the top of that of that sandwich because because it's like musicians talk about oh the major labels is difficult you have to recoup your your uh, 50 grand advance they're having to recoup 15 million dollars yeah and make sure that they're proving all the people who, who greenlit it that this was a right. smart decision. Yeah. And so how did you shield yourself from like the cavalcade of um, everyone's opinion of what should be done and maintain your clear artistic vision to create such a timeless horror classic? Wow, that is a really, really nice spin on things. I have a darker view. Yeah, how did you do that? <laughs> Um, I, I can't say that, that I succeeded in that way. I think I, I learned the hard way that, um, as a director, you imagine there's this sort of version of what being a movie director is that you understand from outside the industry where it's like, it's this guy or girl who's calling the shots and their word is the final word. And that's just not true. That's just not how it works. You are responsible for saying action and cut sometimes and you are you have a say in who gets hired and you push to have as many of your ideas put into the movie as possible but unless you are in the upper tiers of the film industry as a director or you're working on something where there's not as much money on the line um, you're always being pushed back against by the pressures of either economics or uh, opinions of the other people you're working with, your studio executives, your producers, actors that have been in the industry longer than you have. Um, so wrangling that circus was a really uh, tough challenge. And I, and I basically learned that making a movie is like you get paid to deal with politics and manage people's picadillos and personalities. And you get to direct for fun on the side. Like, mm. like the, the directing is like the sort of hobby you get to do when all the BS isn't happening. But the BS is your job. Like that, I, was, I think I was pretty resentful on that movie because I didn't get it. I was like, why is all this BS taking up so much of my bandwidth? You know, putting out fires and calling the studio and talking people off of ledges. And then doing that movie taught me that that was actually my main job. And I got the incredible fortune of being a director in the midst of it, you know, and getting to play with cameras and, and sets and stuff like that. So the art, you're saying the artistic element was often dwarfed by the business and political components of the art making. Yeah. Which is interesting because a lot of people who don't maintain or go into the arts are people who are crushed and defeated by that and say, Oh, well, you know, I just, I'm an artist. I don't have to, I don't want to deal with money. I don't want to have to talk to politics, blah, blah, blah. but those are people who then 
never really go for go for their dreams because it's like so much of the success of having an agent doing the pitch is the hard work and like the sweat and the art is the fun release. And you really have to, it's, it's so competitive that you have to have that like on lockdown. Right. Would you say? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I sympathize with people who, who, who make a U-turn when they hit that stuff. It sucks. It's demoralizing. And you do have to learn about compromise. You know, I like the idea of of a pure piece of art, I think is such a rare maybe non-existent concept, especially in, in industries that require money to move through them, you know? And when you're talking about like what the auteurs like Lynch and who are some people who are like very unique, the unique vision, uh, Fincher Lynch, those guys. Yeah. They had, they've had to play with the politics just as much. And they're only able to make these artistic esoteric films late later in their career because they have these hits, right? At the beginning. Yeah. Like Lynch, what was, was Eraserhead was, that's a weird movie. What was I don't think I've even Man? seen it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You either have to have a hit really early on and then you, with like an indie movie and then you win the trust of the people that are paying the bills and you, you keep winning that lottery ticket enough times you, you get to be in a position to call the shots or you got to kind of trudge your way through. Like Fincher, notoriously, he did Alien three i think it was mm. is his first feature he was a huge music video director as big as they get and like nine inch nails and yeah, yeah michael jackson janet jackson whatever there what was their the song oh, scream did? yeah the most expensive music video ever at that time wow so big deal and he got to do this movie and he was like brutalized by the studio process and he wanted to take his name off of it this is as far as i have heard the stories he just hated it and um and when he came back with fight club he made sure he came back with something that he could control and that he could get it done the way he wanted to. And it was off to the races after that. And so having... Oh, no, seven. Sorry. Oh, seven. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Did he do Fight Club 2 or no? He did right after. Uh, well, so seven, I think, then game, then Fight Club. Okay. The game. Oh, yeah. That's what's up. Fincher. Fincher, man. Um, and it's interesting how then Whisper... This trope of the kidnapped child who is then Satan, right? That's kind of the story. Yeah, he's like a little devil, a little he, hellion. He's ransomed. Like he, you he, when you were four. Oh, <laughs> like me when, yeah. <laughs> but not as bad. Hey. hey is he, um, is he, so is he the devil or is he just like a spiritual entity, a, a demonic entity? Once again, I think that's open to interpretation. But he yeah. does, uh, he does align himself in the dialogue with the devil per the studio's notes. Scary as heck, dude. Um, <laughs> were you protested by like churches and stuff for glorifying the occult? How was the reaction? Well, the movie, so I don't know if you remember, but the movie never came out in theaters. It went straight to DVD, which like crushed my soul. But didn't we go to a premiere? We had like a, a private screening of okay. it. Yeah. But they, so the other calculation that most people don't know about filmmaking is like a movie that costs $15 million costs 25 to 30 million to market. Really? So you're gonna the studio's gonna spend more than the budget, often double the budget of the movie to market it. So to make the choice to take a movie into theaters is a wildly expensive choice for so, the studios. Stu, so like with with um the Rise of Skywalker. So do they, you know, not 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 as much of a revered as Whisper, but No, no. <laughs> maybe like a distant second. They take the so a third, you're saying only a third of the budget's on the production and two thirds is all the marketing, even for a feature like that? That ratio might shift for movies that big because yeah. those movies cost 200 million plus, but they're spending, 
I again, like I'm not a, a marketing executive, but uh, in the hundred million plus range for for marketing. But when you're in the smaller thriller zone, like a five, ten, fifteen million dollar movie, they will spend more than the budget almost always on marketing if they take okay. it theatrical. So you, so was it was a um, direct to streaming and we didn't have streaming back then. We had DVDs and VHSs it was and iTunes, I guess, or? straight to DVD. Uh, I yeah, I yeah, I think it came out on iTunes if iTunes was up then or it came out. It's on there now. Would you say that the direct to DVD market for horror is like a big market or was? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. back then, I, but it was still like a, um, that was a defeat, right? Like like it was a that was a black mark. Like if you got straight to DVD, that was a derogatory term. So they debated de- releasing it for a year and they kept testing it and then they decided they wanted to make it R and then they wanted to make it PG-13 and then we reshot to make it R again and all these deliberations and, and sort of expenses were were laid out to try to figure out if this could become a theatrical thing and ultimately they decided that it wasn't a hard enough R and it wasn't a soft enough PG-13 and it wasn't worth the $25 million bet gamble to take it out. So what what was the rate rating eventually? R? R. But it was like a super soft R. Oh man. And so then when it's R, then then you have then kids under 17 might it not be allowed to see. Limits the audience. So it's a bigger risk for the studios. Yeah. And so and it, you know, if people go to an R movie, they they have an expectation of what they're gonna get in terms of especially in the horror genre in terms of gore. Yeah. Um and nudity, and so if if the movie doesn't check those boxes, then it's like, why is it an R? But wouldn't you say that that idea of uh, the kidnapped kid who's then aligned with the devil was like a trope that other movies then? I remember seeing that in other movies, right? Like that that was you was like the first of that genre, that specific narrative, right? I there was, I feel like there was a movie before that that did something similar. Uh, there was definitely like a short story or two that I, that I caught that had done it. But what was crazy is the R rating came primarily from the fact that the, the motion picture association did not feel comfortable with the idea of a kid hurting people. And so they, they gave us basically a blanket rejection saying that conceptually this movie can never be a PG 13 because it's a kid and he's he's committing violence. And we tried to appeal and we tried to figure out ways to around it. And they kept coming back with that. And then a couple of years later, The Hunger Games came out. And I was like, what? Well, in a movie that you always loved growing up, that I remember we'd watch at Christmas, Home Alone. <laughs> There's a yeah. And that's not, that's what, PG maybe? Yeah, probably. Or G even? Yeah. But, but I There's guess- no murder in that yeah. one, no, as far as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Whisper came out and- um, so you were, how many years from when you got the call, when you're on the mm-hmm. freeway to when like, you're like, it's done. What was that total time period? A it was year two, or two? two and a bit. It must've been excruciating two and a half. as you were trying to negotiate the politics of this thing you put so much your heart into that was then going to be your calling card to do other features. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Must've been frustrating, man. It was, it was super frustrating. I had to mourn, I had to mourn that movie's fate for sure. Cause you get, you put all your eggs in that basket. And especially as a, as a kid, which I felt like, you know, being that young, it feels like the whole world is in that one project. And I think maybe one of the lessons that came out of that is that, you know, your career is, is a 
is a, a collection of projects over many years. It's not any one thing. That's something. I remember when I was um, an undergrad, my advisor in the English department, this guy, um, Robert Polhemus, uh, he was he also did a lot of stuff with film mm-hmm. teaching. And I was trying to figure out when and how I was going to like balance MC Lars with that. And I was, would have been 22. And he read me this poem about ocean waves. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how when you're a little ship, each little ocean wave feels like a tsunami. But as your ship grows, as you get older and your career grows, those tsunamis become more like gentle ripples in the ocean. And you only know that with time. And he read that to me as like, a, don't worry, because it's, it's a collection of victories. Not one thing is going to like define that. it. So that's, that's like a really thing. yeah. That's the same. That's the the poetic version of what I was trying to say. <laughs> but I relate to that man. And oh, totally. I think in your and I wonder, Stuart, like being early twenties, did people? Did you ever get this vibe like this kid? Who's this for kid? sure? Yeah, for sure. And did people jealous of your success? And I would guess so. Yeah, I, I would. I would have been annoyed by me if I were. <laughs> what because you're very energetic and no it, I, no i i i think that i was i i, I work hard to be a, a really pleasant person to work with so it's, i don't think it would have been on that but like just looking at somebody who's given an opportunity to direct a movie that that young that's a that's a really pretty rare thing and i if if i saw somebody else doing it i'd be like well why do they deserve this you know right. so I, I i certainly imagine that that there would have been people like that. But no, like I got along great with the crew. I still thought of myself as a PA, you know, mm. like in some ways there's a there's a red light on the outside of a soundstage that spins and tells you that they're they're rolling and so as a PA you get caught outside the studio you know, because you're, you know, running in and out all the time if the red light's spinning. You're outside and you're you're stuck outside yeah. till the till the take is over and there's usually like somebody guarding the door. And I remember midway through Whisper, midway through the shoot, walking into the stage door and being like, dude, I've been so lucky on this shoot. I haven't gotten caught out here once. <laughs> and then I realized that I could never get caught out there because it wouldn't be rolling if I were outside. If you were not in there saying action. Right. That's funny. Right. It blew my mind. Like I was totally a world changing moment. <laughs> That's like a, um, it's like a being on tour and being like, um, oh, what happens if I'm not on stage on time? When you And when you're the headliner, you're like, well. You're not going to get in trouble because the show is not going to start till you're on stage. <laughs> in your absence, there is no show. Yeah, no, yeah. it's a pretty, pretty neat feeling. Do you still talk to Josh Holloway, or have you? I've seen lost him again? Ta- I've lost touch with Josh. We talked for a few years. Yeah, but no, I haven't talked to him in a minute. Was this before Lost or while Lost was happening? While Lost was happening, so, so he was, was he like flying between it. sets? Or we we had to fly out. We he got him on a we got him on a break. We were fitting, our wardrobe fitting was while they were shooting. So we flew out to Hawaii to put clothes on him and come back. That was actually like really cool as a 25-year-old. I was like so stoked. Um, They filmed on Oahu? They were on Oahu, yeah. And then when we did reshoots, we had a, then he was filming again. And so it was like a crazy Tetris game trying to figure out his schedule. And he had four days, we needed him for eight. And so we used a body double for like every... Oh. shot that didn't require him to be facing the camera there's a lot of shoulders in that movie that are not josh holloway <laughs> <laughs> yeah people don't realize that that like when you watch a movie and it's starring someone you're not watching them the whole time yeah. whenever that you don't have to they don't actually have to be their face it's not them right <laughs> yeah often if you see their hands holding something it's rarely them and their feet it's rarely them unless they're talking it's rarely them then after whisper that's awesome after whisper so 
then when I, after I did the graduate and I was between management and between albums, I rented part of your house in Hollywood and we were roommates. We did. We were roommates. For like half a year. Yeah. And raging parties. It was just wild. It was I, so crazy. We had some great parties. I remember once I was in, I was, we had like um, a Pacific theme party and you were like, all right, Andrew, I need <laughs> you to get lychee juice. This happened? Was, this you, is true? You call me. Yeah. Oh. Do you need li- I need you to get lychee. See, for the that's why I would have hated me back <laughs> then. <laughs> and I was like, this is before iPhones. And I was like, I don't know what lychee is. So I remember I went to like seven <laughs> Asian supermarkets and finally find it. And I, and I, and I couldn't send you pictures of it. And I remember I came into the kitchen, you were setting up and the palm fronds were up and decorations. I'm like, please, I hope I got the right thing. <laughs> and I walk in there and you look at him and go, okay, yeah, I think this might do. And you made this really good punch. And I was so happy that I had gotten the right lychee juice because <laughs> well, I am so sorry that I put you through that. No, but I remember you were like, we had a lot of people come over for this party and it was super fun. And it was like a movie set. You had, you were directing. I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I got into those parties and it was fun because it was, it, fun. it was in a part of Hollywood that was near one of the train stations. Yep. So p- people could come visit. It was near Henry Fonda theater. Yep. It's a cool place. I remember right in the thick of it. I was living with you and that's when the graduate had recouped. So I was making my living off of my just digital royalties. And I was so happy, so proud to be living with an inspiring friend as I was in transition and you were in transition. And it was like a really cool, turbulent moment. I was, I remember I was dating someone in Washington that I was going up to see and that was whatever. But you got hired to do another movie. At that time? Sorority Row. That was right then? You were doing the pitch and you got you got the gig when we were living oh together. Oh my gosh, you're right. You're right. And so that was your second feature. Am I right with the chronology? Mm-hmm. That was number two. And so that- That's my favorite. That's your favorite of your features? Of my three features, yeah. So let's talk about that. That was, um, what was 2008 or 2007? 2008, right? It came out in 2009. So okay. it, we must have shot in 2008. Okay. That feels right. And- um. It was a remake of a slasher movie from the 70s or 80s? 80s, loose remake of a, a kooky little slasher movie, like low-budge cult classic slasher movie from the 80s. And it's loosely based. Loosely based. It and it was called like, Sorority They liked the title, so we wrote something new. Oh, it was the same title, right? Uh, I think that movie's proper title was The House on Sorority Row. Okay. And we were Sorority Row. So, so it was like a nod to it, inadvertently. Ultimately, it was a nod to it. I mean, the same basic concept, Sorority House and... and and sorority girls and some guys get killed. And one of the stars was Carrie Fisher. Yeah. You got to work closely with her. I was lucky. What, She's so cool. What are some of your memories of Carrie Fisher? Um, I remember Carrie Fisher. So the very first thing she said to me was in a, in a casting room or an office in LA where, I mean, obviously she didn't need to audition, but right. it was more like a, a meeting where she wanted to meet me. And, and kind of decide if she, she'd read the script. She thought it was funny. And she was like, okay, I'll meet the director. And so I was freaked out, obviously, like Titan of the, of the film world was going to come in and meet with me. And her role was as one of the dorm mothers, right? Or the dorm mother for the house? Yeah, the house mother, the yeah. house mother. Okay. So like um, the shotgun wielding house mother. <laughs> and so everybody's like, this is all about you. If she likes you, she'll do the movie. If she doesn't then she won't. And so of course I'm like freaked. I'm like, thank you for that pressure, everybody. <laughs> and so I walk in and I, and the first thing she looks at me and she's like, don't look at me, look at my assistant. I forget everybody. He'll remember you. 
tongue in cheek, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was well, half tongue in cheek because then she goes into an explanation about how she'd had shock therapy and her, you know, her memory was mm. was rocky. And we actually like she's super. She had a really sardonic, dry sense of humor that that matched with mine, and we just laughed the whole time. And the next day after the meeting, I sent her a photograph of myself in a frame <laughs> and a book on memory. <laughs> And I think that that sealed the deal. So she knew you. Yeah. So she, she knew what I looked like. Uh, and then she showed up on set. And so, so this, I'll just give you a second memory. Showed up on set wearing slippers, uh, like, like, like the velvet nighttime slippers in an outdoor scene, standing in the middle of the daytime. And she's like, and I walk up to her and I was like, I like your shoes. And she's like, you're not filming my feet, right? And I'm like, nope. She's like, okay, I'm going to wear slippers. And I'm like, by all means. And then two days later, a second set of slippers, which I believe were not purchased fresh. They were actually hers, came with a note saying, if you like my slippers, you can have your own, <laughs> which is really sweet. So you still have them? Still have the slippers. That's really cool. Yeah. So she had a, um, she probably saw in you the optimism and joy of a young person in the film industry that she saw in herself, maybe. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I don't know what she saw, but she we got along and I was honored to get to work with her and she's just she was a blast. She was so much fun and she was super chill. She didn't carry with her any sort of ego that she certainly could have with her impact on, you know, pop culture. Yeah. It was just she was chill. It's probably cuz she knew that your first film had monsters digitally realized by ILM. That was it. That was she'd read the back. She read the sleeve of the VHS tape. She knew. Yeah. Um, Sorority Row also had a cool soundtrack. It really summed up the late two thousands hip hop pop. I've really thought. I've do you thought think so? Yeah, I think you it's got, cool. You got better taste in music than I do. Well, thank you. No, that's not true. You yeah, have very you're good a taste. Musician. I remember you got me um, Postal Service CD. Oh yeah. You got me into them. Wow, that was that throwback. Your hips do so hip. Yeah, I'm sh- the Schwazy "Take Me Home" remix with Diplo, or who's the who was in it? It's and you did the video for that. I did the video. Yeah, the video was meh, but it sorry, featured sorry, stuff everyone. from the movie. It's yeah, we had the, we had some of the girls in it and stuff. Yeah, but yeah, yeah it was fun. And then we, we like the composer, school guy named Lucian Piani, who actually ended up being like one of the guest judges on RuPaul's Drag Race. Crazy, weird trajectory. I met career. Lucian. He came He came to one of the house parties. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. So he was like, uh, he did the score and some original music that was like pop music and we kind of blended them together. So there were themes in the pop music that sunk up with the themes in the score, which I thought was cool. That's kind of meta. That's yeah. cool. And um, it was, but I, what I liked about the soundtrack was that it, it, it resonated with the spooky this mm-hmm. of this killer and the pop element of being a sorority being in a sorority house right and so that's like a scary you had music has to really inform the aesthetics as yeah. when you rescored one proved right, right? yeah music important. tells a, a huge part of the story um in sorority row i remember we went to the premiere but it went to theaters right and bombed and why do you think it bombed i don't know i i have a lot of theories i don't know that any of them are correct so i liked the movie the movie is not you know a is not going to be in the top 100 movies 
that like film students need to see. It's just a fun, poppy, scary movie. I pitched Mean Girls Meets Scream, and I think we kind of delivered on that. It's yeah. very sarcastic and it's you know funny and bitchy. And is that a a bad word? <laughs> no, that no, no, that's that's G-rated. I want to keep you G. <laughs> um, and the studio liked it. It was Summit, which became but got ingested by Lionsgate. Um, they were proud of it, and they put a bunch of money. I think they spent. 27 or 28 million marketing it there was seeing billboards around hollywood yeah there was was billboards like it was it was a real deal i you know there's so we were on a date that was a really good date it's all about where you're sitting on the calendar with movie releases and then shutter island jumped onto that date which was obviously a big deal movie at the time and so the studio was like we're not opening against shutter island um Scorsese movie, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And so we moved and we jumped onto 9-11, which was a weird one. Uh, You're uh, saying that it got released on 9-11? Yeah, we moved a month late. Wait, no, sorry, we pulled it up a month. Okay. And so when you when you pull, like a movie's release plan has a lot of, uh, it's calendarized very, very methodically. So mm. like press is planned out what magazines the caster is going to be in and the, you know, how, how the press is going to roll out is planned out months in advance. Like these magazines book their covers months, months in advance. And so when we pulled the date up, it totally blew up the press plan. So like all of the, the cool spreads that like the girls were going to be in in different magazines and stuff like that, which were going to be in October couldn't happen anymore because the movie was now being released in September because they wanted exclusive, like exclusive content to promote something that was upcoming. Yeah. They're, they're never going to run something that's, that's happened. Um, and then a lot of people thought that the marketing didn't, that played it up as a, a straight horror when it was really a comedy horror. And that was misleading. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, whatever, whatever happened, the, the people didn't, come to the theaters so the trailers didn't get people excited i know they they dude they put so much effort into those trailers and they test them and they tweak them and they're tuning them you know week by week as they watch the numbers come back in it's a crazy mysterious art but it it just didn't get butts and seats for some reason and but that's the function of the machine not the art i mean often right with most things yeah i mean i think that's what's so cool about the the series universe right now is that like actual word of mouth there's there's a time allotted for people to like see a show and recommend it and go check it out and the the success of a show isn't based on its its first weekend movies right. have this really challenging problem where their success is based on how many people show up in the first weekend and that by its nature can't have anything to do with the quality of the film except for maybe reviews you have to walk in based on what you think of the trailer or what you think yeah. is going to happen on the screen and if you're interested and then the second weekend can tell you you know you can sort of read the tea leaves for the second weekend and mm-hmm. see how people have responded but nobody in you know the industry has has moved on at that point the success is largely based on the first weekend so you know it it is disconnected from the actual quality of the movie itself i think yeah, and it's a binary thing, probably. Like, did it recoup right away? Right. And um, if it didn't, I'm sure they're thinking, well, do we keep investing in this to try to make it recoup? I mean, it's so much like records with major labels, and like, yeah. and so, yeah, you can't have having the sleeper hit 
with an album is easier now more than ever because streaming, right? Streaming. And so it's like you can, you don't have to invest so much into the marketing of an album these days. Do you think there are parallels with how the music industry's changed with how the movie industry's changed in that regard? Or I think content has changed, you know? Yeah. I, I think in a lot of ways, content, the quality of content now has the ability to drive its its popularity in a way that it didn't. Like marketing is still obviously very important and people need to self-market and all that stuff. But like I'll tune into something because somebody that I trust tells me it's good, either music or or uh, series or content, whatever. And that's because it's it's been out there long enough. People make their own choices. You go, you know, to the 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 streaming service of your choice and you you invest your time in it because somebody has recommended it to you. I mean that's I make my decisions and I saw a lot of people make their decisions. So it's, I think it's changed dr- drastically. I think, I think the quality now actually is, is driving the viewership in a way that it never did or the listenership. And there's this interesting thing that's happened recently. I've seen where it seems like these directors are premiering their films in theaters and Netflix concurrently, mm-hmm. like with the Irishman and marriage story. Right. Mm-hmm. And, that's interesting because then they inform each other, but people still want the experience of going to a theater. Yeah. It's really weird. But what do you think about that? I think it's great. I think it's a change. And I think we're, you know, everything is is due for disruption. I think a lot of people got kind of squirmy about that, you know, film purists, both in the industry and out of it, that, you know, you might be able to, God forbid, watch something on your home screen that was meant for a theatrical release. But, you know, it's whatever gets people to the content in the mode of their choice, I think is great. And if somebody sees something on Netflix and they're like, you know what? I want to see this on the big screen because I loved it. And I want that experience, a communal experience or better sound or whatever. That's awesome. And if they don't have the chance to get to the theaters, they still have a chance to see it in the, in some form. So I'm not one of those people. I understand the argument of people who are film purists who are like, you know, this is a, a communal experience with the optimal sound and picture, and it must be delivered without, you know, bathroom breaks and, um, you know, being able to like push pause. I get it. I get that argument, but I just think the world's changing and like, let's embrace it. Yo, that's what's up. Disruption. Um, and speaking of series and speaking of the shift, you then, one of your projects was the Halo Forward on to Dawn, which was a web series that was became a movie right or yeah talk about that that's cool i when i say my cousin directed that people are like oh i get good nerd cred from that nerd cred (laughs) um that was cool i think that's the project that i'm most proud of period wow so like sorority was my favorite of my features that's the project i'm most proud of period that was it was a blast it's an amazing universe that we got to play in the the all the studio stuff that happened and can happen somehow magically didn't happen on that. The, the people even at Microsoft that, you know, are watching the bottom line were just awesome and supportive. And it had the magic alchemy of getting to be as close to what it was envisioned to be creatively as anything I've ever done, which is super cool. Um, it was a web series designed to be released in five parts leading up to the release of Halo 4 as like an on-ramp, so like a giant trailer. And the last line of dialogue in Halo Forward Unto Dawn was the first line of dialogue 
in Halo 4. This was a so it was a cool overlap. We just teed up the game. Uh, and then they kind of smushed all five episodes together and put on Netflix like a movie, which is a little bit weird because it wasn't ever, you know, movies follow specific uh, patterns in the way they're written and structures, and it didn't have any of that. So it's kind of a, like a bizarro movie, but it people like it, and yeah. it got a good run on Netflix. So And fans, gamer fans, are relentlessly critical and opinionated like the Simpsons comic book guy. Right. And this is like universally halo fans love, love it because it was a departure. And so many of the video game movies like Mario brothers, street fighter, mortal Kombat, kind of missed the mark. Right. Yeah. And so when you were doing it, were you like playing the game and working closely with Microsoft to like, to, to be true to the universe? How involved were the yeah. game creators with you? They were super involved. And we actually had, so our one of our producers, a uh, really good buddy of mine, actually film school buddy of mine, we we were next to each other in the dorms first day at USC. Named That's Jam- awesome. Jameson. He was um, one of the producers on the project. And his primary role was being um, a conduit to Microsoft 343, the studio that was doing the game, and making sure that we were executing everything within the halo universe accurately and if we were wanted to do something that hadn't yet been represented in the halo universe that they could create a narrative to explain it that it could be defended um if we wanted to change something in the halo universe and they agreed with it they would come up with a a story to support it so there's a guy named frank o'connor who's sort of the keeper of the canon of halo Mm, super cool guy and him uh and jameson were sort of like you know, like connected with the the red phone. They were always like sort of syncing up between the game and us. And it was intensely complicated, but it was really like everybody was like on the same team and trying to get it over the finish line and make it cool. And it worked. So when you have a project like that, it's interesting. We talked about marketing budgets. The marketing behind Microsoft's release of Halo 4 really was going probably into the game but this is like a component of it so it wasn't all or nothing in terms of like the meddling to recoup the cost i'm sure right yeah that must have helped (laughs) no you're exactly right and i don't know if i've ever thought of it exactly that way but like we were the marketing and so there wasn't as much they there was a lot of pressure that this was the first live action halo anything aside from a couple of like 60 second commercials and so there was a lot of pressure on being perceived as the first live action halo movie or series or whatever but the the series didn't have to make money there was no they, they, it couldn't make money <laughs> at least until it went right. to netflix that was not designed to make money and so yeah you're right that stress was not there yeah it was it was early in the streaming world right so like web series was like a new term and everybody's kind of finding their footing and experimenting with new formats and YouTube optimization, all that nonsense hadn't even really begun right. at that point. It was just kind of, um, I don't know, like uh, hunting and pecking, I feel like. And so the, we came down to like, let's do five 15-minute episodes so that ultimately they can be smooshed together into something that's like feature-esque. And that seemed to be a length that was playing at that time. And it was enough to kind of be like a mini TV show, but not too long that you lost attention. So it, it worked out to be a good formula. Um, if anything, I think that the, the challenge in that project was that we had limited resources for what the ambitions were to do a universe that big and 
special effects and suits and aliens and stuff like that. So we had to put a lot of that money into the back end of the series mm. and the, the first, effects and stuff. the effects. Yeah. So like it's very back heavy in terms of cost, and that means that the it, the criticisms that were most prevalent of that it was super well received. But the most prevalent criticisms, which I think are justified, are that the first two episodes are sort of they're character driven and they're a little bit slow. Like you want mm. more more like cinematic meat on the bone and we just had to put it at the back because we had to deliver an epic ending right right that's right. cool that's cool um okay so talking about reboots Yo. and cannons max Steel. that happened that happened <laughs> <laughs> that 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 was i remember n- talking to you f- that you were working on that for years too many years what was the total time frame of that project i think it was three I, maybe a little bit more in terms of like the times that from when I actually started having conversations till when it came out. It was a while. And it was a toy from what, the early 2000s that they wanted to make a movie about and re- rebrand? What's the story, the backstory? Let me see if I can get this right. I, it was a toy that, that had stayed extremely popular in South America okay. for Mattel. It was okay. Mattel. And Mattel had not at that point, I don't know if they have since, made a made a big movie made a made a movie um for theaters and hasbro was doing gi joe and and you know like battleship not that that was amazing but they were in it transformers transformers that did fine yeah (laughs) um and so mattel was like we got to catch up and they had a bunch of their big projects were in sort of like development hell and all the studios and the financier that ended up making Max Steel came to them and, and sort of found this thing on the the shelf of the library and was like, I'll make this, but I'm going to make it at a lower price point. And they were like, cool, at least we'll get something off the ground. And so they were trying to reboot the toy at that point in the US and, and kind of draft off of the success in South America. And so they, were, they greenlit the movie. Knowing that people there would be excited to go see the movie. Yeah. Um, I remember being at Comic-Con, seeing the suits and like seeing you being interviewed about it while they were yep. making it at the Mattel booth. That was the high point, I think. It was all downhill <laughs> from there. I think we have a zero on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think, like, I mean, like it's in color, yo. <laughs> Give me one. <laughs> like the sound syncs up. <laughs> zero. If we want to get into the details of the zero, it didn't hit the threshold to become an official score because it wasn't reviewed by enough people, okay. but it did tabulate it at zero. Anyone who's a Rotten Tomatoes reviewer, please go on. Yeah, please just give us like Max something. Steel. Give it, give, <laughs> get us up to like 2%. United, it was on every time I was flying, I'd see it in the movies. Like, oh, was, really? Yeah. Poor people, you're trapped in a tin can and you have to watch my movie. Sick version of hell. <laughs> no, no, it's too, it's too. Um, <laughs> that had a lot of meddling, didn't it? I remember you saying just a lot of rewrites, re edits. Like, you kind of, that got away from you, huh? Yeah, that was yeah. a super challenging movie. It had a, it, uh, it, pressure's pushing on it from every side. So budget uh, for a superhero movie, it did not have the budget it needed to support that. What was the total budget? Can you share? Uh, total budget was, uh, I think it was, I think it was twelve ish. I think some people might say fifteen. There's some weirdness with tax credits and rebates and stuff. So there's some some squishiness in that number. Ultimately, if you looked at the line items in the budget and what got put on into production, Halo had a lower budget by far, and more of that money went into production and onto the screen 
than Max Steel. And Max Steel had a bigger budget by almost double. Um, and that's just a factor of how that budget was allocated and used and and maybe misused just because movies have weird pockets of money that don't necessarily make it to the screen. Didn't Max still have a lot more CGI, right? It did. Because well, the, ro- the robots following around, right? And that's had a robot character. Yeah. So it wasn't... Um, you know, I think we, so in, in movies, we, we talk about shot count for VFX. It's like how many shots total that tends to be the barometer of, of what a big movie is. Um, I think that Halo was in the three high three hundreds and I think Max was in the, the, the high four hundreds. So it wasn't like crazy different. They were both sort of big for indie yeah, and small for like a, like a Marvel movie would have 2000 VFX shots. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And um Max Steel came out and yeah, now and the world has been changed ever since. <laughs> better now, place. No, and it's the toys are flying off the shelf. Did yep. it, did it have a resurgence with the toy? Like with all no, the No, I don't even know if they're still making the toy. I the I I, I honestly don't know. I okay. I kind of I kind of like divorced myself from that the yeah. that um franchise a little bit That's after it came out. Fair enough. So I, I don't think the toy's being made anymore. You do a lot. But of- I do have one with my face on it. They made like oh, Mattel really? made me a special one. It's super creepy. Is it? Yeah. You, the blister pack still or? Yeah, it is. My husband may, is insisted we keep it. I want to throw it away. You gotta <laughs> frame it. It's really scary. <laughs> Does it say Stuart Handler director? No, I just oh. it's like the normal box except <laughs> I'm in it. <laughs> probably it's a get metaphor. A, you could probably get a lot on eBay for that from South American fans. That's a good idea. I'm going to do that after this. If you ever need to. Yeah. Um, now you do a lot of car commercials and you travel the world doing these like amazing cinematic car commercials with huge budgets, huge crews around the world, right? Pretty cool. It's dope, man. I get to play with cars in the dirt like a, every five-year-old kid wants to. And, and, you and get, I get paid for it. And you get to travel. I get to travel. And, you, and it's interesting how you were telling me that culturally the different um, – pieces resonate with like the tropes and the audiences of like what defines speed and strength in different cultures like you went to the middle east and it was a metaphor of a falcon flying Mm -hmm. with it did i get that right Mm -hmm. and like yeah talk about that that's cool yeah i mean it's it's really cool so i car commercials are funny i didn't know a lot about them until i started doing them they're very very complicated to shoot a moving vehicle and to tell a story about that uh, is incredibly technically complicated. It's really fun to do once you learn how to do it. Um, but it takes a lot of work. And every car commercial is trying to be different than the last one, even though they're all about cars driving in pretty places, ultimately. And so they're trying to sort of sell the, the car. And every culture has a different way that they're kind of trying to infuse the car with whatever they've decided their brand is. And so, like in the in the Middle East, we just did a a spot about a man like racing a falcon or having a, a, a special journey with a falcon because falcons are are hugely important culturally there and represent you know strength and grace and um, and all these things that they wanted the car to have. In in China, I've done a couple spots in China. The the briefs tend to be f- much more poetic and abstract hmm. than. In the, like in the U.S., we usually tell like a literal A to B story. Man wakes up, man goes here, man finds you know something cool. The end. Right. 
And in China, it's much more like man is running up a mountain and then there's sparks and then there's the waterfall and then there's the car and then you're supposed to understand what happened. And he talks to his ancestors. And he talks to yeah, <laughs> something. something like that. Yeah. But it's neat. It's neat yeah. to, to watch how, you know, how all this stuff gets developed. And then I get to come in and kind of try to make, make it, you know, cool, whatever. Like I come in and try to put my, my spin on it. And I'm sure your diplomacy and ability to organize groups of people and convey between the actual technical uh, creators of this piece and go between with the financiers and the marketing people, your brand is kind of in like, we know we're going to get something great from Stuart and it's going to be technically interesting, culturally unique and energetic. So let's, you got the gig, dude, right? Like, oh, thanks. You've kind of built that. I feel like I just got hired. That's <laughs> awesome. Get, that's, that's part, that brand longevity comes from these non-tangible assets you've built in the film industry and that you can do that and do movies and do web series, right? Well, yeah, and what I love about the commercial industry is like the the um, the mask is off, you know, like it is commerce. And right. so <laughs> it's so much more forgivable to have a client walk up to you and be like, I need the lipstick to match the color of the car. You know, that opinion is actually valid in advertising and it's forgivable and it's like, okay, we're selling a car. So like, I get why you've had have that opinion. And like, if I disagree, we can talk it out or whatever. When that comment comes in the film industry, which it does, and then the reason when asked is because it's artistic, let's say artistic advice of like a studio executive, but really it's not. It's about something that they're maybe afraid because their boss has asked for, has said once that they like red lipstick. The, the, the motivation is, is, is obscured in, film, in filmmaking. Everybody's pretending that, it's, that they're making choices for art. And in commercials, like, it's just like, it's more clear and therefore more fun. More transparent. It's more transparent. Yeah. Yeah. More fun because you don't have to worry about that. Because you can just call it what it is. Right, you know, right. you can be like, look, this is, this is the, this is the edict coming down from, from the client and it either it sucks or we're going to try to way, try to find a way to work around it, but we we know its origin and we know its rationale. And on a business tip, like everything that's underwriting, the production, the creation, everything, the, the film piece itself doesn't have to recoup on the cost. The product is going to recoup those costs. Right. So the, it's all underwritten. So that stress is gone too as, yep. as a component of what you're talking about. Yeah. It's interesting. Just got to sell, sell units. Um, You're married. I am. You have a son. This is true. And um, I see your relationship with your husband, and I see you as a father. It makes me realize that it's possible to balance that with a non-traditional artistic entrepreneurial career. And I, I, I love getting to know – I've enjoyed hanging out with your son and you guys this Christmas, and it makes me so happy to see you achieving that. How do you balance time with your partner and the romance and being a, being a dad – with having to be in Saudi Arabia, Russia, all over the world. And like, how do you, how do you, how do you connect those dots? Cause I see you do it super well. Uh, a lot of trial and error. I think it's taken a minute to find a balance. Like uh, I'm lucky cause my husband is incredibly supportive of my career, which is a part of our marriage. You know, my, it's like the third member of our marriage. Um, and it's just, 
we've we've kind of developed best practices like how if I'm going to have to go away, how we're going to split up the roles and the work. Since since um, our son, which is just turned two years old, that reshook up that whole. You know, the we kind of found a rhythm and that shook that up, and it was challenging. There were growing pains, like, um, but we're we're getting back, I think, towards a rhythm. It's interesting because, like, I everything now is about him in the best possible sense of the word. Like your son, I, my son, yeah. Like I, I, the choices we make, career-wise and otherwise, are now largely, in some way, they're all related to him, and that's cool. Like that just took a second to sort of divorce myself from this idea of of um, of self and going after what I thought was good for me because of me. And you know, like in the marriage, you do that to some extent, but then then the kid comes along, and it, it for me was a much bigger shift. It was like a full upheaval of like life's priorities, and that's pretty rad. Like I've I've actually never been happier than I am now creatively, even though I feel like my career is maybe that's because I feel like my career is diminished in its like greater importance in my story. Like I mm. care deeply about it, but like I live for something more now, you know? I've had uh, guests on the podcast, a few who are musician fathers, mm-hmm. and they talk about how becoming dads and and has made them better at their craft because they know they have X amount of hours to pen a song. And, um, you know, some, some of them have licensed songs for TV themes or, or done stuff for, you know, marketing and how – you don't like you're talking about the red lipstick thing. It becomes this thing where it's like clear, like, okay, well, it would be one day people are going to remember and see your films. But right now, in the meantime, as you're doing the art, there's also this paying the bills and creating yep. your art, which is this generation, this young dude who you are is going to take care of you when you're old. And he is in one of your most profound creative projects in a way, right? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a good way to I think that's a really good way to put it, which is yeah. like the the deep uh thoughtful pause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I think that when you have when you put parameters on things, you know, when you put timelines on things, I think cre- a lot of creative people I do better with deadlines. I do my best work in the final hours before something has to be finished. When you start sort of like fencing in things like a my career job my career job you know <laughs> as opposed to your other job <laughs> yeah. career job uh when with those new parameters comes like a discipline to like do your best work within that amount of time and i feel like it kind of works you know like it it's great and then you you switch and you switch into dad mode and one day maybe those two things will blur and he'll be like able to come to set and that'll be cool for him but ultimately yeah. right now it's like you gotta you gotta turn it off for a second and and like when he's crapped his pants and you're like pulling over on the freeway like you're not gonna take the call about the red lipstick and the and the kia and you it, know and you know and, and and that's okay goes the voicemail because we're in this instantaneous world and and hang out with your son over christmas 
one thing that was kind of fun, like we we're playing music and dancing. I have these skulls on my guitar because mm-hmm. it's a Tim Armstrong Rancid guitar. He points out, he goes, skeleton. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's smart. I didn't even notice that. Like having, I wonder if having a son who's able to like see these small things, yeah. if that ever gives you an idea in your own creative vision. Totally does. Yeah. I, I feel like I, and I also feel like I, I watch and uh, consume art differently now too. Okay, cool. You know, Daniel like, Tiger. Like Daniel, oh God, beautiful <laughs> piece of art. Um, that some willingly and some less, less, less willingly. But no, like, like stories about parenthood and permanence. You know, I've also lost my parents in the last couple of years, and so these bigger ideas of like how much time we spend here and why now resonate with me in a way that, like, when I was like a twenty-six-year-old directing Whisper, I don't think I had the 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 life experience to like really know what I was what I was um, playing with in terms of the medium now I, I as a consumer I get to see what what is affecting and and that gives me the tools hopefully to like make things that are affecting as well that's interesting and what is timeless and what is not right yeah what is style and what is substance yeah I think about that like kids react to music if they react to something and they like it they're honest if it's whack and they're not feeling it it's not good like seeing fans send pictures with their kids singing certain songs. Those are songs I try to include more in the set. It makes yeah. me happy, man. It's so cool. Because it's like, that's why we're here. Yeah. To connect with the future. Yeah. You know, you're, you're right. Like watching him watch things, it's like you just see unfiltered truth, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like he has, he's not going to, he's going to, his reaction will be real. Yeah. 100%. Stu. Yo. We lost your mom this year. Uh, we did last year. Last year, yeah. sorry, we lost we lost it last year, and um, I remember you said you're coming back from a shoot. It's hard because you want to call your parents and tell them what you did because they're proud of you. Yeah, and you know they're proud of you wherever they are. But have you been doing like with with everything? I mean, I know it's we don't have to get into the details, but no, it's cool. Yeah, um, I'm doing okay, and. It it sucks. It sucks. Yeah. Let's let's call that out. But I'm doing okay, and it and it does really shake you into this kind of working on your your perspective, right? So now I look at, at my son and the future, and the analogy I use is like you're on this conveyor belt and you're heading towards this, you know, this drop off, right? And like they're, they're <laughs> and that's death. You're that's saying? death. Yeah, <laughs> and like. That when your when your parents are alive, they're in front of you. They're like blocking the view, right? Wow. And and when I lost my parents, I felt like holy shit! I can see the end of the conveyor belt now. It's right there, and it's coming, and there's no stopping it. And that just that's that's fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah. we can erase that. It's that's okay. <laughs> if you want to scratch it. That's really terrifying. Yeah. But it's also um, it's great because it makes you care about things in a different way and it makes you value things in a different way and i think i'm a better person for that i hope so i'm working on it but i think like gratitude was something that i think i didn't take too seriously like i felt generally like a person who was grateful for things in life but now it's like it's like it's a mantra for me you know and i don't know what about losing your parents does that but it has for me your mortality is clearer. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. 
it's not. It's a real thing. What's what's striking to me about losing your parents is that when it happens to you, it feels like you're the only person that it's ever happened to. <laughs> when in reality, it's happened to or will happen to everyone. Yeah. Except in rare cases, you know, where where you know the parents aren't the first ones to pass away. It's so universal and so ubiquitous, and yet we don't talk about it with each other, and we're not prepped for it, and nobody knows what to say to one another when it happens. Mm. And it, it it's it's just I find that very bizarre, you know, which is why it's like Coco came out at just the right time to make me cry every time I watch it. Oh yeah, man, yeah. But it's a beautiful <laughs> thing, you know, like the the idea of embracing death as a fundamental part of life and celebrating it, you know, mm-hmm. that cultural construct I find really compelling because it shows people from the you know earliest age like what's what's going to be part of their life. And I feel like within our culture, I guess I'm saying American sort of straight, straight down the middle American culture or Western culture, we don't talk about death and we don't acknowledge death. Death is is something that it's sort of like, it's only talked about when we have to, Mm. when it happens. Mm. And it just makes, it leaves you feeling very stranded when you're the one in it. And so, that's my that's my that's my plug for Coco. Yeah, <laughs> I remember when we were we were, when I first met you, your son. We we had coffee and we were in Burbank and the sun was setting. We were talking. I hadn't seen you for a while and you were like, you know, it's watching the sunset. You play with your son here. This exact moment will never happen again. But I appreciate it. And that really, I've always I thought about that and I treasured that memory. And I really appreciate how we've stayed close through now. 37 years on this yeah. planet and always looked to you like a big brother and I love you still. And I'm grateful to have you on the podcast and Thanks, guys. talk about your career because talk about a conveyor belt. I mean, in another way you were on the conveyor belt in front of me kicking butt and launching your career and, and showing your parents it's possible to have a career in the arts. And I think my parents looked to your family's like, Oh, well, Stuart can do it. Well, Anybody can do it. <laughs> we'll we'll get behind this this MC Lars thing and the fact that we collab the fact that our first collaboration together opened doors for me where I think that video's like got so much I don't know, not, not to dwell on the past but that opened doors you know and yeah. you did that for me on a small budget and you pulled favors and that's an honor man it means that a lot a, to me it was a blast it was a blast no it, it goes both ways dude like um having a, another creative soul in the family is like, it's a big part of what keeps, keeps me going looking both ways. It's almost like we're brothers with the time we spent together and all the growing up close to each other. Yeah. So you're my big bro. Yeah. That's what's up. Um, where can people follow you and like, what are you working on? Is there anything you want to plug or? Uh, there's, I, I, I do, but I can't, I have okay. a top secret project, which is super, super, super cool, cool, which is coming up, but I literally can't say another word about it. Um, stewarthandler.com has all my, my stuff. And what are you, are you on Twitter? Very unique name. Yeah. Are you still but I'm active? the worst, I'm the worst tweeter. Okay. Tweeter writer. So your site is the main portal. Yeah. I'm, I'm terrible on social media. <laughs> I need to learn that from you. I need to do a podcast about how to. Beyond social media. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, man, because we, we'll, we'll wrap it up in a minute. But a book I talk a lot about on this podcast is Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism. Mm. 
<laughs> and um, Brian from this band, I Fight Dragons, it's a band I've worked with a lot. He turned me on to it. He talks about using social media thoughtfully and fine in a finite way mm-hmm. in the week, certain moments, so that your marketing and promotion of your brand is something you do intentionally versus the passive consumption of everyone's whatever. And I think that in the era of your and my careers growing is what's changed. So I'm trying to return to that, especially in 2020, like do social media. Yeah. But I think my point is you're doing it great in that you're able to create your art and you don't have to like force your brand on people. Yeah. And that's the balance. And I think like, yeah, I think you're doing quality over quantity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's like the people that I watch and follow, I think are more deliberate about what they deliver and not just slamming it down your throat. Yeah. I like that better, but I don't know. It's all evolving, man. Because your work is not a 30 second Reddit or Instagram video. It's a, it's an immersive cinematic experience. So in a way it's like, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Yeah. I also like, I don't, I haven't had to learn how to market myself to a, a larger audience because I'm, I get hired by, you know, a corporation or by a Kia. So I'm, it's a, it's a more sort of behind the scenes marketing that's going on. The your brand is in how you connect the dots with these things, and but your your brand is your your really cool vision. And I encourage audience if you haven't if you haven't seen the Halo Forward Unto Dawn, stream that. If you haven't seen, I really like Whisper, stream that. And um, yeah, Max Payne and Sorority Row, stream those two because they're classic. Don't watch Max Steel. Max Steel. Max Steel. Max. What's Max Payne? Oh, that's a video game, right? Yes. Max Payne is the guy who comes home, his family's killed, so he spends the whole series trying to get revenge. I didn't do that one. No. Yeah. <laughs> so Max Steel. <laughs> check it out. So don't, I'm not going to say it, but these are the ones we recommend. Stuart, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, cuz. Yeah. Love you. Love you, too. Nothing can stop me. I'm Jabba the Hut. Go. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. Nothing can stop me. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm the biggest baller down at Tatooine. Tatooine. My bounty hunters mobbing. They some wretched thieves. Wretched thieves. Solo in the carbon night. We know he's sleeping. Rebels got R2 Lando 3. I got Boba, got Leia, got Greedo. I'm Jabba the Hutt. I'm the biggest baller down at Tatooine. Tatooine. Weigh 3,000 pounds and I'm hella mean. Rarely do I ever count my calories. I'm Jabba the Hutt. I'm Jabba the Hutt. I'm Jabba the Hutt. I'm Jabba the Hutt. Nothing can stop me, I'm Jabba this the Hutt For my sprinters, I'm Moses, but pod racing Gave the signal to start, but I was Z-chasing When I slide out of bed, give me two breakfasts oh, Jabba's almost as wide as the state of Texas Vader knows I'm running things Trap door right by my throne, the door swings And I got topped off in the second Dark Souls Champion the girth, yeah, I got a few rolls I'm Jabba the Hutt Fill my stomach up and if you ask Yoda, well, I'm feared, he'll point to my ranker and say, He's Jabba the Huts. Baska. He's Jabba the Huts. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. 
Nothing can stop me. I'm job of the hut. the tauntaun, so I'm bigger now. Ain't on a diet, gotta go feed this mouth. Love the empire's big business now. With the gold chains, croissants still remains. Light it up, they slimy piece of filth. Salacious be crumb, makes me laugh and that's ill. I got mad wrinkles, kinda like their city is. I'm much bigger than Niagara Drip. I'm job of the hut. And Luke knows what's up. Lando says behave, I should try. Can't fit inside the Uber XL, it's way too tight. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. Nothing can stop me, I'm Jabba the Hut. Be choking on my chains, can barely breathe. Barely breathe. Every scale I step on gets demolished. Demolished. Skywalker tried to bargain, think he's joking. See, I got so low, you got chewy. I got Boba, got Bosk, IG. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm the biggest baller up on Tatooine. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm the biggest baller up on Tatooine. I'm the biggest baller up on Tatooine. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. Nothing can stop me. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. I'm Jabba the Hut. Skywalker can't stop me. I'm Jabba the Hut. Chiskar Nok Nichu Manta. Thank you, Stuart. That was my all the way up Fat Joe parody, Job of the Hut, which will be on Spotify and everything soon. You can get it on SoundCloud now, but that's a little preview for y'all. This week, we have the MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Lars of, of the week. We've got Jasper in Washington, who discovered me through K-Flay. He talks about that. Hey, uh, I'm Jasper. I'm from Washington State, and uh, I've heard of MC Lars through a K-Flay song called Running Trains. It's about um, MC Lars and K-Flay's friendship. I thought it was super cool. Um, yeah, all music, dude. Keep it up. Thanks, Jasper. Your shirt is in the mail. Thank you for your support. Next week, I'm talking to Gabby Alter, a.k.a. Yes, Gabriel, a.k.a. G-7 from Front of Lots Band. We talk about his solo record, what it's like writing musicals, all sorts of cool stuff. So check that out next week on the MC Lars Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Stuart, thanks for being on the show. Peace.